He is the one who gave the announcements. Uh, Andrew's an elder, his wife Olivia lead worship, and James, who was playing guitar, is also an elder, and his wife Courtney here. So I'm just saying that because uh, we care for your souls. This is what we do as leaders, and we wanted to just provide an opportunity today to have some food together to give you a chance. Please introduce yourselves to us. If, if you're identifying Calvary as your church, then we want to know you. We want to meet you, right? Jesus said, good shepherds know the name of their sheep. And I'm not demeaning you by calling you sheep. You're my brothers and sisters. But uh, we just want to know you and, and get to know you. And you get to know us so we can have a relationship and, and serve you well while you're here at, uh, in Ithaca. So we're making our way through the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 11, the famous Hall of Faith, and we've been enjoying our time. The writer to the Hebrew church, or these Hebrew Christians, is bringing to our focus um, a good number of men and women who endured, uh, and he's doing this to encourage us, the church. In our faith. And so today, front and center comes Moses. Um, Let's just read verse 23 to 29 and jump in and sort of get our feet wet here a little bit. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Okay, welcome to Moe's. Whatever, I like to call Moses Moe. He's my... (laughs) Um, I'll just tell you right up front, uh, the thing that the Lord has focused my attention on, I want to share that attention with you, is the word greater riches. It was the greater riches that gripped Moses' heart and soul and caused him to change and cause great change in his life. Greater riches. Okay? (laughs) Uh, I enjoy, maybe you enjoy as well, these mobile banking apps that are available today. You can put them on your, download them from your banking institution. You can enjoy all kinds of advantages where you can transfer money, you can make payments or deposits, and you can check your account balance. Maybe that causes you a little stress. Maybe that gives you a sense of security. Depends on what the numbers are. But I think that in Moses' case, he just kept checking the account and he saw the greater riches that he has in a personal relationship with God and it strengthened him and empowered him 
to be a great leader. And he's, his testimony of his life is there for us today. Moses, to all the Jews, was the greatest of all men. Let me say it this way. To all Jews, Moses was the greatest of all men. According to one early tradition, Moses had higher rank and privilege than the ministering angels. This was a, it's not, it's not scripture, that's just a, a Jewish tradition. Uh, Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. He was Israel's greatest lawgiver. He was Israel's greatest historian. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, most of Deuteronomy. Obviously, Deuteronomy closes with his death. He didn't write his own death. He was considered Israel's greatest saint. Interesting. In Numbers, it tells us that Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. He actually wrote that about himself. That's how (laughs) humble he was, (laughs) that he could say that without blushing. He was the greatest prophet, the greatest lawgiver, the greatest historian, the greatest saint. He was Israel's greatest deliverer until Jesus came. And I think that uh, one thing that sort of struck me is Moses, just his name itself is mentioned more than 850 times in the Bible, second only to David. So of all the, of the greats, the Bible greats, Moses is right up there. He's mentioned so many times. And yet, since we have a, a, a lengthy narrative of Moses' life as he comes on the scene in the book of Exodus, the writer of Hebrews has condensed his life down to seven verses. And really starts with his parents first, and then six verses related to his life. Which I find quite interesting because it basically takes us through the whole journey of Moses stepping away from the royal palace down in to identify with his people to bring salvation, deliverance, and freedom. And if that doesn't mirror the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus, I don't know what does. It does mirror it perfectly. So I want to show you that hopefully as we go through here. First in verse 23. There's five by faiths mentioned here. And the first one here is in verse 23, and it relates to Moses' parents. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. That's kind of odd, isn't it? It's like little Moses, baby Mo, is born right? And he's born at a time, you guys, you know this, right? From Exodus. I'm going to assume a lot from you this morning that you're familiar with the story of Exodus. It opens up, the narrative opens up, that, they, that Egypt was the greatest empire on the planet. And the Jews, beginning with Jacob, had migrated down into Israel uh, Jacob's son Joseph has been elevated to vice pharaoh. He was the VP of Egypt for quite a while. He was a phenomenal man, man of God. But Joseph died. The Israelites continued to grow in number. 
And the pharaoh, uh, the dynasty continued, and like three, four hundred years in, the pharaoh looked around and did a head count, a kind of a census, and realized there's actually more of them than there is of us. That is, Jews versus Egyptians. So we had a national security problem. Because he thought, if we get attacked, they might ally themselves with our enemy. We're going to lose from the inside out. And so he changed his policy and established slavery. He put the Jews under slavery and used them, abused them, mistreated them viciously and violently and caused them to work for him. They became slaves. Moses was born during that time. The king of or Pharaoh, his synonymous terms, became so anxious that the Jews would not continue to procreate or, or, or multiply that he had a zero-child policy. Zero-child policy. So that's what I call it. Okay, It wasn't actually, because if you had a baby girl, then that was fine. But if you had a baby boy, you were instructed to kill the baby boy. Well, that didn't work because they feared God and they weren't going to do that. You don't kill babies, right? In or out of the womb, you don't kill babies. They're babies. They're humans. And so when he saw that wasn't working, then he instructed his own people that if you see a little baby boy, take him from the parents and throw him into the Nile River. Crocodile food. That's when Moses was born, and that's what's referred to here. His father's name was Amram. His mother's name was Jochebed. The scriptures will tell us that back in the Old Testament. So when he was born, he was hidden three months by his parents because, very interesting, they saw that he was a beautiful child. All babies are beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> um, that actually isn't always true. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so, you know, is this saying, well, if he was an ugly baby, then we don't want him? No, 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 no. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. <laughs> I think, as near as we can tell, when you look back in Exodus chapter 2 and And uh, it would seem that there was something else that was given by God to Moses' parents. There was a a sense of discernment or, or an insight that there was something about this child, that there was a destiny and a purpose for this child that was given an understanding. Parents were given an understanding of this. Let me illustrate for you from a personal experience. Years ago, when Pastor Andy was just very young, (laughs) I think he was four or five years old, my family and I would go to uh, a nursing facility, a senior facility up in Rochester, New York, and it wasn't a very good one. Uh, It just wasn't. But we would go, and we would sing some songs, we'd share some Bible stories, and, and then, uh, actually, you know how it is, the, the kids are such a blessing to the seniors. And so, uh, on this particular visit, 
my kids and some friends of ours and their kids were going around one by one and just saying hello to the different seniors who were sitting there in their wheelchairs. And there was one woman, uh, a black woman named Millie Shelley. And Millie Shelley never raised her head. I'm not sure if she ever opened her eyes. But they would wheel Millie out and she would sit in her wheelchair the whole time with her head down and her eyes closed. Very old saint. And I was with Andy, who's about four or five years old. And he comes around, and he comes and he gets in front of Millie Shelley. And I tell you, as true as I stand here, she raises her head, she opens her eyes, and she looks at Andy, and she says, you're going to be a preacher someday. Now, is that true or what? <laughs> if you were here last Sunday, a boy can preach. How did she know that? That was a word of knowledge given to her by God over the life of my little, my little boy. And I suggest to you that that might very be the case, might very well be the case for Moses' parents. As he was born, there was, a, there was a purpose, a unique purpose. There's a unique purpose for every one of us. But for Moses, it was a little different. And his parents' faith denied the king's command, civil disobedience, because it's better to fear God than man. And they hid the young boy until it got too risky. Three months old, he's starting to cry. I don't know, little village, police moving around. Your imagination can go wild on this. But they realized it's too dangerous to keep the boy in our home. So when it became impossible to conceal his presence, they came up with a creative plan that floated him right into Pharaoh's palace. Jochebed took a papyrus basket, coated it with pitch, put her beautiful baby in it, placed it in the reeds where Pharaoh's daughter would go down to the Nile River and take a bath. And, he sat, and she sat big sister. Moses had a sister, Miriam. He also had a brother. Anybody know his name? Aaron, older brother. He put his sister Miriam there to watch what would happen. Baby Moses, of course, melted the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. And as she cooed over him, popped up big sister with the brilliant suggestion of a surrogate nurse. Result? Jochebed got paid to nurse her own baby and to raise him during, during his early years. Jochebed, his mama, was paid by the royalty to raise this little boy until such a time, probably after he was weaned, he was sent back and Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. By the way, this is a trivial fact, but it was Pharaoh's daughter who called him Moses. So what was his given name? We don't know. Bill. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Moses means drawn out, right? She took him out of the river. So it was Pharaoh's daughter who gave him the name Moses. One little note before I move on. What encouragement I hope that that is for any of you who are parents or grandparents and how the challenges that we have in raising children in today's, as Kent Hughes said, secular desert. <laughs> the challenges of raising children to know God, 
and to love Him with all their heart. There's so many challenges on them. And yet here's the faith of these simple slaves who didn't have much to offer their son materially, but they passed on to him their understanding of what God had told their father Abraham, the covenant that he had made with them, with his people, and that he would go with his people down into Egypt and a time would come after 400 years, it was prophesied to Abraham that I will bring my people out. And in fact, we were told in verse 22 that Joseph, nearing when he was on his deathbed, he said, oh, and by the way, when you all leave here, be sure to take my bones with you. Because he was looking to that which was beyond. And so, parents, grandparents, I know I'm speaking to a small group of us here about that this morning, but I'll tell you what, you pour into your life, right? Your children are a gift from God. And the best thing you can do with that little gift from God is give it back to Him. You put all your energy into that life that you have and the time comes, as the, as the psalm says, where you release that arrow and you aim it at the target, which is Jesus Christ. And to know Him and to love Him. And the best way to do that is to love the Lord your heart with all your heart, parents. To be an example to them of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In all your words and beauties, right? It's all good. So that was Moses' life. Verse 24. By faith, now we just went 40 years in time, right? By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Choosing, I love these words here, refusing, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? Because he kept looking at the reward. That's what that says. That's the explanation. That's why I love those words as you study your Bibles, brothers and sisters. I just encourage you, look for the word for. It's it's just, it's a New Testament. It means because. It explains, right? It's explanatory. For he kept looking to the reward. He refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. The impact of that should not pass us by. Moses walked away from the throne. Do you hear me, friends? He's the son, adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was heir to the throne. And with that came all, it was a glass ceiling. It was all the privilege and power and possibilities that come with being the king. Moses turned from that. It must have been a a heartbreaking time, really, because I'm presuming that Pharaoh's daughter, who seems to show some compassion even when she sees him as a baby boy, she didn't want to kill little Hebrew babies. She adopts him willingly pours her life into him. In Stephen's great sermon in Acts chapter 7, it says Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he was provided the, the, the great... He was, he was Ivy League, friends. 
Okay? It was the greatest institution, educational institution on the planet at that time. And Moses was, was raised in this. And he had all the, the dreams and the hopes of being a king to refuse to be called Pharaoh's daughter. I ask myself, why? Why when you've got everything possible in front of you, any pursuit you want, you've got the resources to go get it. Anything, name it. Any, any personal pleasure that you want, just snap a finger. It will be provided for you. You've got your own personal chef. You've got your own personal chauffeur and anything. You're the king. This was what his future was. What got into the head of Moses that he would do such a thing? Have you gone mad, sir? Greater riches. That's what got into his heart. He had an encounter by faith with God Almighty. And it tells us that turning from setting aside this adoptive relationship and all the the, the blessed future that he had materially, it says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Oh my goodness. (laughs) He stepped down from the throne willingly. He wanted to do this. He stepped down from that throne and he stepped into poverty and brokenness and injustice and victimization. People that were damaged in their hearts, in their souls from malicious, heartless, painful treatment that just never ended. It was dark and it was depressing and it was demonic. He willingly stepped down and stepped into and shared in that affliction. I have to say that if you are a victim of somebody's manipulation or coercion, abuse, You have a Savior who has stepped into your world, who is wanting and willing to step into your world, which He's there for your healing. That is the greater riches, the mercy, the riches of His mercy and of His grace and of His understanding. Jesus stepped down from the throne in heaven In Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that he set aside his glory and took upon him the form of a servant and came in the likeness of a man. And then he identified, he he was with us, he identified in our brokenness. For the same purpose of Moses, of bringing deliverance, of bringing healing, of, of healing broken, wounded hearts. And all the shame and the contempt that comes with that. That is the most glorious and beautiful example of Jesus Christ 
here in the life of Moses in the Old Testament. He stepped into the affliction because he wanted to. He set aside his glory and put upon him, Jesus did, put upon him the form of human nature, 100%, for the purpose of identifying with you. And whether you're self-inflicted or it's inflicted by another, it's traumatic and painful. And we all need healing. And so I rejoice in God my Savior that I can stand before you in all good confidence in His nature, in His humble, caring, loving nature to speak to you today and tell you that Jesus understands. He understands. He loves you. And He's willing, if you will let Him in, He's willing to walk with you through that. I suppose in fairness, I should say that if you have been the perpetrator and you have a dark spot in your history that is yet to be confessed, then... He does not cast you off. He died on the cross for that sin. For all sin. So you can bring humbly yourself to Jesus. Make that confession, that honest, raw, humble confession of what you have done that has been unjust and abusive and manipulative and cause someone else great shame and harm, and hurt. This is a holy moment. This is a holy moment right here. God is speaking to you from the life of Moses. (laughs) He chose. Jesus chose. Because He's rich in mercy for the great love and where He loved us. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. (laughs) I'm just laughing because I love the Bible. It's so real. It just tells us the facts. Sin feels good. (laughs) That's why we do it. It's pleasurable temporarily, (laughs) right? It's like a, I don't know, it's like a snack. It's like eating Doritos. <laughs> like I love the MSG rush and everything that goes on, but you know what? It just makes me hungry for more. I get a temporary fix, right? Uh, Noah's going to make some delicious coffee for us uh, this morning, and it is great, but the caffeine buzz wears off, right? Then I want more. <laughs> so it's a passing pleasure, which I think stands in contrast to the eternal riches Because God's alive and He's living and He's eternal and He's great. And Moses just... You know, I I love the fact that it told us that that he was educated in in everything, in the philosophies, in the STEM, right? He was powerful in word and in deed. And I think when he got to 40 years old, God bless Moses, man, for all you people that are geniuses. Right? I'm looking up to you intellectually. But I think Moses just applied his, 
his uh, logic and his reasoning skills that he'd learned in his education, and and he applied it to the faith. And he said, this makes perfect sense. I could go for it here and now and then die and go to hell, or I could put my faith in Jesus Christ and have eternal life in heaven with him. And he's eternally beautiful and good. It's like, it's like putting it on a scale, right? You can load up one side with all the worldly possibilities and then you put it over here and the scale just like flips off the table. There's no comparison. Moses just simply, he applied that. It says esteeming. It means he considered. It's that scale idea. He, he gave great thought. He loved the Lord with his mind. He loved the Lord with his heart. And then that moved his feet to step away from and to refuse Pharaoh's daughters and and all the possibilities. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Right? So, uh, reproach of Christ. Uh, What's that mean? Uh, I honestly don't think that, that Moses saw Jesus. Uh, that he had a concept, literally, of Jesus like you and I have. I think that the writer of this letter, who's strongly encouraging his brothers and sisters who are struggling as to live out their faith because they were being persecuted. Okay, Andrew was telling us about the persecuted Jews in Saudi Arabia. These people were being persecuted. Their homes were being looted. They were losing jobs. They were being sanctioned. They were running for their lives like wild animals. Because they claimed the name of Jesus and Christianity was becoming increasingly unpopular in the Roman Empire. Because they were devoted to another one, not Caesar. Caesar is God. No, he's not. Well, then bow the knee. You better bow the knee. I'm not bowing the knee to anybody. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all over again, right? Well, then we'll throw you in the fire. Threaten me with heaven. Go ahead. So I think the author is just, he's, he's saying, I think what he's saying here, esteeming the reproach of Christ. Again, I don't, I, I just don't think that Moses actually had a concept of, of literally of Jesus as the son of God who's taken upon himself. He might have had an awareness it was his promised future deliverer. I think what the author is trying to tell you and me is that there is an identification between God and his people. And he's just pointing out to the New Testament believers and he's using Jesus. He puts Jesus in here. And his official title is Christ. Right? The reproach of Christ. He, for Moses, it was the reproach of being identified as Jewish. People who believe in the one and true and only God. Obviously, the Egyptians had many gods. God began to judge them. They worshipped all sorts of weird things. Like Flies and lice and locusts. That's why God judged them, to show that he's supreme and sovereign. Are you with me there? The reproach of Christ, esteeming the reproach of Christ, considering that, that, uh, that my worst day in the kingdom of God is better than whatever I could have over here. Right? Isn't the psalmist says that? Psalm 84. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Right? That's what he's saying. 
Moses just said, you know what? Even if I, or when I go down and I, and I get involved with this church and uh, the political pressures come and it becomes harder and harder and harder to actually identify as a Christian without suffering for it, Moses like, that's a better day than sitting on the throne with all that I can eat and watch and do and think and sex and you name it. So he esteemed the reproach, greater riches. There it is right there. Greater riches. I think, again, he's just identifying. It's a statement of identification. It's a a statement that speaks of how closely Jesus identifies with his people. Do you all remember Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Remember when, when the great apostle Paul got saved, right? Walking down the road. Heading to Damascus, Jerusalem to Damascus. Jesus, who's now in heaven, appears to Saul. And Jesus just revealed in a flash of glory himself. Paul tells us that it was the light of God was greater than the sun. It knocked Saul to the ground. And then Jesus spoke to him. And he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that beautiful? You see, Paul, at that time, was raising havoc with the church in Jerusalem. He was getting people arrested. He was throwing them in prison. He was breaking up families. And he was doing this in the name of God. But when Jesus appears to Paul, he says, he he relates that identification Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You touch them. You're touching me, son. Get your hands off my bride. (laughs) Which I love thinking of, right? Jesus is the head. We're the body. The identification that we have with Christ. The greater riches in that identification. Zechariah 2, verse 8 is an interesting verse. It says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Right? It's that same idea the pupil of the eye. Somebody has once said, it's hard to poke your finger in somebody's eye on purpose because the reflex is so fast, you protect, right? And that's what God is saying. He's identifying. These are my people. And Moses is like, I want in. I want to be with God's people. Greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt. Now, the comparison there is made to literally the coffers, the Fort Knox, where they stored all the, all the money, right? I don't think, and I, I presume that you understand, that I don't think for a moment that, that it, it's, it's stuck, this idea of greater riches is stuck just in, the, in the, what you can get from God. I think it goes way deeper than that. Way deep. I know it does. Moses is identifying those priceless characteristics of God's nature that strengthened him and sustained him. Like God's mercy. Right? Paul would tell us in Ephesians, but God, Ephesians 2.4, but God who is rich in mercy means he's... Endless, infinite in his ability and in his desire to show mercy to hurting, broken people. 
God who is rich in these are the greater riches that Paul or sorry that Moses I believe had gotten a hold of in his life and he was he was holding on to the beauty of God's character God is beautiful and to know him and to love him is because he's loved us first and Moses knew this and these were the great riches that he held on to and he's like you can't compare money can't buy joy and peace it can't Who is it, Joe Frazier? Smoking Joe? <laughs> he said, money can't fix a lot of problems, but it does ease some of the pain. <laughs> right? Y'all don't know Smoking Joe Frazier? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he took Muhammad Ali down, right? Uh, anyway. How did Moses do that? How did he endure the affliction and identify with God's broken people. He tells at the end of verse 6 or 26, for he looked, for he looked to the reward. He kept looking to the reward. What was the reward? Was it escape from Egypt? Maybe. Was it going to the promised land? Maybe. But again, I think the greater riches, it was God himself. It was God himself. This was, this was Paul's heart. Right? In his final letter, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, he goes, I know that there awaits for me a crown of glory that God has set aside for me. Paul kept his eye on the prize, which was God and His faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. We have a future and a hope. Paul would say in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Right? Moses kept his eye on that. He looked to the reward. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Again, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. As seeing him who is invisible. There's a friend in the New Testament by a man by the name of Bartimaeus. He's helpful to us here in this idea of seeing what can't be seen with the naked eye. Bartimaeus was blind. He was born that way. He's begging outside the walls of Jericho. Jesus goes walking by. Something's different, obviously. Probably had heard that Jesus had healed blind people. And so as Jesus is walking by with his whole retinue and this crowd as he's on his way to Jerusalem, Bartimaeus, who's blind, sitting on the road, covered with dust and filthy and unkept, he's begging, but he hears that it's Jesus. He goes off. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. People are like, shut up, man. It's Jesus. He's busy. He's got a lot of things to do. Jesus stopped. He says, what's, what's going on? Tell that man to come here. Here's my point. That man did not have eyesight. He had insight. And it saved him. He got a vision of God. Jesus healed him right there in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people. And all of a sudden, his eyes open up and the first thing he sees is his God, his Savior. And it says that he kept following him. Moses fixed his eyes on the nature and on the character of God. My brothers and sisters, that comes to us from your Bibles. That's why we read these things. Read your Gospels constantly. I will tell you what I was told by my pastor years and years ago. Always be reading a Gospel. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Always be reading one of them because it's the life of Jesus influencing my life. The Son of God who has stepped into my world and understands you and me perfectly. Be influenced by Him. That gives us greater insight. And as we walk in obedience, our eyesight becomes even better and better and better. (laughs) Right? Our insight becomes better. So I love the two four words in 26 and in 27. And it strengthens my argument in verse 26 where he looked to the reward. Was the reward a thing? No, I don't think so because in verse 27 it says, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So the reward is connected to a person. God. God is good. And he loves you. And he sent his cross, his son to die on a cross for your sin. To give you eternal life. Moses fixed his eyes. Unseen to him, but known. Not unknown. (laughs) Amen? Doesn't Paul say that in Corinthians 13? I know in part, and I prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. I look in a mirror, and I see just shadow. But when he has come, then I shall know even as I am known. And I will see him face to face. That's why it's important that we understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God sent him into our life to seal us for the day of redemption and to communicate to our heart and our mind his character, his power, his strength, his glory, his being. So that we, like Moses, can endure so that we can endure. My brothers and sisters, I readily admit, I need you to endure. I need men around me to endure. I love my brothers who stand with me in leadership because it's raw and it's real. We're, we're imperfect, but we love each other. We share our hearts together and we endure and we're walking by faith this, this Christian life and we're strengthening one another. The benefit of your small groups of fellowship like picnics today. Moses had that benefit as he he hung around other men and women who were also enduring. And he was encouraging and influencing them and I hope it encourages you today. Verse 28, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood because he who destroyed the firstborn should not touch them. So Passover, right? So we've gone now another 40 years. Moses is 80 years old. By the way, it always interests me. Like there's these 40-year periods of time in Moses' life. 40 years under the Pharaoh's daughter, 40 years out in the wilderness, comes back into Egypt, and then he goes back into the wilderness for another 40 years. Which is really interesting to me anyway that here's Moses after... Leaving Egypt, he forsook Egypt, goes out into the wilderness, gets married, has two kids. He comes back now as an 80-year-old man. He's been out in the backside of the desert tending sheep for 40 years. By the way, he has a speech impediment. Here comes Moses, all by himself, with a stick in his hand, and he smells like sheep, and he stutters. And he walks into the greatest empire on the planet. 
And they're afraid of him. Pharaoh's like, Moses is like, God says, let my people go. My people go. It just sort of confirms the fact that all those temporary pleasures that Pharaoh and his kingdom could enjoy, he was still afraid. He was full of fear and insecurity. Moses wasn't. If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that what Paul said? And when you read the account, Moses was scared. But he was also faith. He had faith in the one who was for him. And he, and he had consumed the riches of God's grace. And he had grown in his own relationship that he was able to stutter, uh, let my people go or else. <laughs> I mean, he was just like bold. Not impressive. But he was bold in his God. And then the plagues come and finally the tenth plague, Passover. You know the fascinating thing? They'd never done it before. Never done it. It's like, are you kidding me? So you're telling me that if we take lamb blood and get this little plant that's kind of like a sponge and put the plant in the blood and then like use it like a paintbrush and, and put it on the sides of our door <laughs> and then we go in and we consume the lamb that somehow we're going to, that's going to cause an escape out of this abuse and trauma. Hopelessness. They'd never done that before. And Moses is like, that's what God said. Let's do it, people. And they all did it. They went in in 70. Two million walked back out. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. The same way we're saved. And then they got baptized. Verse 29. They passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. <laughs> so there was a, a separation. There was a sanctification. They were... I think that's what that baptism in the Red Sea, the Red Sea, I see it as a type of baptism. First, they are saved from death, its penalty, its power, the pleasures of sin, and then they went into the Red Sea and they came out on the other side and their enemy was never seen again in that case. So that's the Word of God this morning. Greater riches. In my feeble attempt, I'm just trying to communicate to you, my friends, that it really is what sustained our Savior in His earthly ministry. And I know that because His last prayer, He said these beautiful words. As He's about to surrender Himself to the greatest injustice committed in human history, deicide, Jesus said, Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I think Jesus, in, in his suffering, in his 
acquainting himself with the broken and the hardships of human life, he kept before him, I know he did, my Gospels tell me that, especially John's Gospel, he kept before him his future. Isn't that what was communicated at the Transfiguration? Right? Jesus took Peter, James, and John up in the mountain, and he's just like normal Jesus, right? And then all of a sudden, his whole body, everything changes. And he told them, you're going to see, I'm just going to give you a little trailer, it's a little sneak preview of what I'm going to look like when I come the second time. And Peter, James, and John fell down. And it was, that's the reality of the future was his present reality. And that's what sustained him. That's the greater riches. So brothers and sisters, we'll take communion this morning. So worship people, if you would, please come on back up. And while we're taking communion, what I think I'll do today is uh, I'll just hand out trays and you just pass the trays around back and forth until everybody has a little communion cup that has the wafer and the juice all mixed in together there. Um, so why don't let's do that if you would please sir John Jaden and Gary uh, yeah just take one pass it around Andrew just laid down a little bed of music there for a moment Mike, if we need more, there's some in the storage room, Mike. Yeah. My hope is built on Jesus Christ. His his righteousness, His blood. All our sin went out of Him when He was on the cross. He buried it. Put it away from us as far as the east is from the west, the scripture says. My hope's in his resurrection. He rose again. He's alive. 
My Jesus is alive. He conquered sin and death. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So here's what we'll do. We'll just, uh, you've got your emblem of his body and his blood. And Jesus said, I want you to remember me by eating this little piece of bread that represents my body. And I want you to remember my blood that forgave all your sin and can bring healing to your heart and mind. So I'll just leave you in the presence of your Savior. And while we sing, Son of Suffering again, if you want to sing, sing. If you want to just confess, confess. If you want to just worship and admire Jesus, then you can do that, whatever. It's you and your Lord. And then when the chorus of this song, you partake yourself, okay? I'm going to sit down and I'll join you in all that.
sing the doxology. this morning. So an abrupt end here, but uh, what we'll need you to do, if you would please, lights on, um, is stack chairs to move them to the side. And then uh, tables will come in, 